Well, good evening, LCM. Good evening. We are in our seventh session on Esther this evening. Now, it will take all of our restraint not to go into the textual details that highlight the sovereignty of Adonai tonight, but we will refrain because we plan to have a special session at the end of the book dedicated solely to that subject. Now, last week we took a little different approach together, and we focused on recapturing the narrative that is so easily lost in the midst of detailed analysis. Tonight, we're going to follow much of the same format and pattern. If you were attending this study as a first-timer, do we have any first-timers in here tonight? Good. Because if you were, we would need to explain all of the reasons for the assertions that we were making. But you are not first-timers. You've been here for 14 hours of teaching on the book of Esther that support what otherwise might appear to be speculation. As we tell the story this evening, we are going to plug into the story some of the details that you have learned and forego the justifications for it. Since you have already heard the teachings on those subjects and have the recordings and notes to revisit. So let's all engage with the suspense, the surprise, relief, and jubilation that is inherent to this amazing story this evening. Since our format is a little different tonight, and we'll return to our older format next week, we're going to start in prayer and uh, then work through the narrative in a continuous fashion right into the reading of the text. So why don't we do this? Since Spencer was the last to be in his seat, he can be the first to stand and pray for God to illuminate what we are doing tonight. Lord, we tell you that we love your word, Lord. Lord, we lift up our eyes to you and we say, Lord, would you illuminate to us, Lord, the very word of God, how you want us to walk this out today, Lord. Lord, it's with great and eager expectation, Lord, Lord, that our pastors have searched the scriptures, Lord, and they're encouraging us to do the same thing, Lord. Lord, we want to be noble like those Bereans, Lord, who search the scriptures diligently. Lord, right now in this moment, Lord, we turn our focus to you. We say, God, all of our attention, all of our directions towards you. Lord, move in tonight's teaching, Lord. We will engage with this tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So make sure that you don't zone out. Try to engage this exactly as it is, a story. The story began in Esther 1. Xerxes is the king of the whole world, and the setting is opulent. It's even reminiscent of heavenly things being placed on earth. In fact, throughout this book, Xerxes is a shadow and type of Adonai himself. The story begins with Xerxes described as remarkably generous, and a man who builds unity through giving gifts and showing tolerance within his kingdom. The amazing king suffers an unprecedented royal embarrassment at the hands of his bride. This occurred in the full view of every important person in the government. His queen, Vashti, refused to bring Xerxes' glory by joining him in the efforts that he was making. The event itself, was seen by the entire kingdom as a threat to society in general and a problem that must be addressed. One of the things that made all of this even worse 
is that Xerxes was hosting these lavish, generous parties in an effort to unify his kingdom in the largest war effort that Persia had ever faced up to that point. Esther 2 picks up four years after the Vashti event. Xerxes, driven from pressure to complete what his father had failed to do, invaded Greece. He achieved his major objective in the burning of Athens, but he suffered a serious loss at the Battle of Salamis. Now, returning home from that battle is where the narrative picked up again in Esther 2. At that point, our story brought us to a man named Mordecai, who himself was of royal descent, but in the tarnished line. His character was immediately controversial, but it was also very attractive yeah. to the original audience. Because although he came from a disgraced line, his own character was excellent. One of the endearing things about Mordecai is that he adopted his cousin, who had become orphaned. Yeah. Then the story shifted back to Xerxes with all of the complexities of a man who had suffered the embarrassment of Vashti and the discouragement of a loss of a major naval battle. He was now looking for a bride to restore Shalom and shift his attention uh, to domestic affairs. Come on. The beautiful on. young orphan named Hadassah, or Esther, was chosen. In the story, Esther's background is not known to Xerxes, and he falls deeply in love with the inner beauty of Esther's character and actions. Amen. Man, Xerxes was so happy to have an honorable wife yeah. that he shows her favor. He then announces a holiday. And my favorite, suspends taxation. He then goes on to place a crown on her head. Now, meanwhile, Mordecai continues to have obvious affection for Esther because he shows up every day to check on her welfare. Now, during one of those visits, Mordecai uncovers a plot to assassinate Xerxes. And he moves quickly to have Esther intervene, which ends up saving the king of the known world's life. Mordecai had been at the king's gate and discovered that two eunuchs who guarded the king's doorway, named Bigthana and Teresh, had become angry, and they conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. The report was found to be true, and those two men were hanged on the gallows. It was recorded in the Chronicles of Persia that Mordecai helped Xerxes with the assassination plot, but Mordecai received no discernible recognition for this great act of valor. Zero. Strangely, and even conspicuously, immediately after these events, a man named Haman rises to receive honor and significant promotion. The timing is somewhat odd, and the reader is left with suspicions as to how Haman achieved this meteoric rise. Esther 3 then goes on to show Haman rising rapidly in influence and favor as Xerxes' right-hand man. Now, while the reader understands that Haman is self-promoting and evil, Xerxes does not yet seem to be aware of these character flaws. The story is dramatically building towards conflict, and the conflict's initial trigger point is that Mordecai will not recognize Haman's newly elevated position, or lower himself in honor of Haman. So at this point, the biblical reader, i.e. you and I, would understand that this conflict extends into ancient history. 
That's because Haman was an Amalekite, and Mordecai was, of course, a Jew. But anyone encountering the story would also still have a growing suspicion in their minds about Haman's promotion and rapid advancement following the assassination plot, while Mordecai, who himself had acted so valiantly in this part of the story, seems to have gone completely unnoticed. Haman then persuades Xerxes to have a decree issued for the genocide of every one of Mordecai's relatives anywhere they lived in the world. Wow. Xerxes has no idea that his treasured wife is one of those relatives. Surprisingly and tragically for him, neither does Haman. The die is cast and the decree is issued and suspense is building regarding the outcome. To build yet further tension in the story, when Xerxes' name is used in a decree, Persian law does not allow for it to be repealed. So it appears as if the annihilation of the Jews is an unstoppable reality. It appears as if it's an unstoppable reality. The world has been given a decree of annihilation, and it's in the name of Xerxes. Even sealed with Xerxes' ring that was on the hand of evil, evil Haman at the time. As you remember, chapter 3 ends with the city of Susa in total bewilderment. These things had an effect on the society at large. And this would have left the reader in substantial suspense with questions like, will the Jewish nation survive? Will the royal orphan queen escape the peril? How did an Amalekite like Haman managed to get promoted within the Persian Empire but Mordecai was the one who acted valiantly and yet went unnoticed. Could Haman have secretly had something to do with the plot and Mordecai's refusal to bow to him have both been based on biblical conviction and maybe a lingering suspicion or knowledge? You can imagine that by the time you reach chapter 4, Mordecai is quite distressed. Remarkably, though, he doesn't raise an army, and he doesn't go to the public to make his defense. He appeals in humility to his God through repentance and fasting. Now, Esther becomes aware that something is terribly wrong with her cousin and adopted father. She's distressed by it, so she tries to comfort him through a faithful friend named Hatak. She sent him to bring clothing and get word on Mordecai. However, Mordecai will not be comforted by any of these things and refuses them. So Hatak then begins to act as an intermediary, and he faithfully conveys every detail of Mordecai's predicament to Esther and the newly found predicament of Esther back to Mordecai. Whereas chapter 2 had dealt with an assassination plot on Xerxes, the story is now about the assassination or genocide of the queen and her entire people. Mordecai helps Esther see that there is only one solution, and it requires her to risk everything that she has gained so far in the story. More than that, it will require her to risk her life, as she now must go a second time to the king. The only other time that she has ever done this was regarding the original assassination plot to take Xerxes' life. So chapter 5, it was a riveting chapter, took us through the personal journey of Esther from sackcloth to royal actions in 
just three days. Malhut! The tension in the story was palpable. In the dramatic scene as she approached the king, not knowing whether she would live or die, everyone encountering this vivid portrayal would have breathed a sigh of relief. Everybody now? Oh, that's exactly right. A huge sigh of relief. When that golden scepter was extended, it changed everything for the reader. But only briefly. That cinematic tension went away for a second, but it returns rather quickly. So as soon as we all caught our breath, King Xerxes asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Can you imagine the tension in the orphan queen's paws, no matter how long or brief it was? And then she asked for a banquet instead of explaining her mortal predicament and the peril facing her people. The bravery and courage that it took for her to withhold an answer from the king, it's kind of difficult to imagine, especially since the king keeps assuring her that she can have anything, even up to half the kingdom. We know that Esther was not losing her nerve but instead was waiting for a sign in the disposition of her husband. Come on. She was brave, patient, and discerning, disciplined to wait until Adonai prepared the circumstances. Amen. Now you guys should remember, normally males and females dined separately in Persia. And yet, Esther has to have a banquet with Xerxes. Now, even more strangely, the normal Persian feast hosted Thousands upon thousands. That's an average, normal feast. Thousands upon thousands of guests. And then Esther had asked for only the king and Haman to attend. So it's co-ed, and it's just the three of them. That's a bit weird. The awkward, somebody say awkward. Awkward! Awkward tension that the request created would have only been relieved in a minor way. When Xerxes consents to her awkward request and agrees to the supremely odd arrangement, the situation was so out of the normal and odd that Xerxes' approval of it is proof of his affection for her. So the scene then moves forward to the banquet and the enigmatic table is set. They're eating and, of course, drinking. The king his queen, and for some unknown reason, Haman. (laughs) The situation is awkward. It is abnormal. It is weird. But it is happening. (laughs) Then the inconceivable happens again. King Xerxes asks her a second time. Now what is your petition? What is your request? You can feel the tension rebuilding as you engage with that setting. It was bad enough when Esther didn't give him a straightforward answer the first time he asked, but she withholds the answer from him again. Now, it is true that the tone and demeanor of Xerxes is amenable. After all, he keeps offering her half of the kingdom, but she is still not willing to say why they are all there. Will his patience end? It's a good question. And why will Esther not just state the problem? Has brave Esther's resolve failed her? Nah. Or is something else at play in the divine story? Yeah. 
Of course, we know that Esther is searching the face of her husband, looking for an indication that Adonai has set the stage and prepared the king's heart in some way. So Esther steps up to the line. She lays it all on yet one more banquet in only 24 hours' time. Wow. And she tops it all off with a promise to answer the king's question at that time. However, she again requests the same peculiar guest list. (laughs) That's awkward, man. Yes, who's coming to dinner? (laughs) In the interim, between these banquets that we're having, Haman and Mordecai continue to escalate their own conflict. Haman only grows in his anger, and Mordecai only grows in his resolve to defy Haman. (laughs) And Haman goes home to his wife and counselors and embarks on an epic adventure of (laughs) self-aggrandizement. When you think his bravado simply cannot rise to a new level of hubris, he says, And that's not all! I am the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. Oh, come on. Now this whole event, all of this uh, aggrandizement, it caused the counselor's confidences to be emboldened by Haman. His blustering encouraged them to advise him, and they encouraged him to build a gallows for the execution of Mordecai. Now, of course, no one present thought to ask the seated king for permission beforehand. After all, Haman was undergoing an unstoppable rise. I mean, he was on his way up to the monarchy. Yeah. And nothing could prevent him from achieving all of his own personal ambitions. Moving on up to the east side. (laughs) So at the end of chapter five, we were all left with questions like, what is it exactly Esther's going to ask for? Why didn't Esther just go for the jugular in her first audience with the king? What my girl would have done. When she got to the first dinner party and Haman was there sitting at the table across from her, why didn't she just lay out her case or make her defense? More than that, why didn't she ask for Haman's head on a platter? And we were also considering what was going through Xerxes' mind. The wife he has always wanted has risked her life to talk with him about something. Why will she just not tell him what it is? It has been 30 days since they were together last. Is she pregnant? Whoa! There's a hearkening back to your teenage years. (laughs) Or is it related to the last time she approached him? And it was an assassination plot. Ooh, that's more likely. (laughs) Now, he probably remembered that Artemisia had risked her life to give him good advice on two occasions. But at least Artemisia had said exactly what she thought on those two occasions. Yeah. (laughs) Now, we wrestled with the deep concern that Xerxes would have had with Esther's obvious caution to speak plainly to him. His beloved has asked for not one but two of the most unusual banquets that have ever occurred in his empire and in his culture. As we moved into chapter 6, it became apparent that these things were causing a sleepless night in Susa. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) In fact, the Hebrew was even more emphatic. It said, that night sleep fled from the king. Yeah. The Lord used the course of human interactions to bring about Xerxes' suspicion and his curiosity 
that caused sleep to flee from him. The only time that Xerxes could remember that Esther had ever approached him before, curiously, it was involving an assassination plot all the way back in chapter 2. So he decided to go on a research venture yes. and review the events of his reign surrounding his meeting Esther and the previous assassination plot. Quite a study. Mm-hmm. During this preparation for the second banquet, Xerxes realized that mistakes were made by his administration. You know how rare that is? <laughs> Not that they're made, that somebody realizes they were made. <laughs> so he knows that Haman was promoted rapidly, but he can't remember if anything was done for Mordecai, who actually saved his life. Xerxes discovers that Mordecai had gone unrewarded at the very same time that Haman was greatly honored. Wow. Now, while the story did not explicitly enumerate the details, it is implied that Xerxes is wondering if Haman can be trusted. You guys remember that? He finds this out as he's walking in. He's questioning the reason for Haman's attendance at the banquets, those awkward events that he didn't set up but his wife asked for. He is examining the suspect details of the meteoric rise of this Amalekite who is not of noble Persian birth. But the thing that he knows for sure is that he does love Esther. He loves his wife. And he now knows that the Jew Mordecai can be trusted and he has it in writing. So after sleepless night and in the early morning hours when everything was quiet and Xerxes was understandably unsettled a little bit he heard a commotion of someone entering the outer court Mm. remember the NLT phrase the question is who is that in the outer court and of course the answer was uh, Haman how about that (laughs) now in our view this is an awesome display of the mastery of Adonai over human affairs our great God used the questions in Xerxes mind and the growing suspicions to drive him towards a climactic conclusion. Mm, In the very same moment, our God used the eagerness of Haman to destroy Mordecai as a tool to drive the situation towards its climactic resolution. We know that Xerxes was suspicious of Haman because of the way that he phrased his question to Haman. Xerxes deliberately omitted the name Mordecai from his question. He could have said, hey, you know, I was reading and noticed that Mordecai, he wasn't honored for something he did earlier. What should I do for Mordecai? But Xerxes did not say that. Instead, Xerxes deliberately left the question vague (laughs) so that he would have the means to test Haman's loyalty and ensure the truthfulness of his answer. Mm. True. Yeah. Haman's answer revealed the previously concealed ambition of Haman's heart to Xerxes. Because in every way possible, Haman has asked for the symbols, has asked for the symbols of the monarchy to be associated with him. Remember, he asked for the royal clothing that had been worn by the king. He wants his swag. Haman asked for the horse ridden by the king. He wants his ride. His whip. And Haman asked for the horse. Yeah, his whip. <laughs> the horse to have a royal crest on his head. Not, not just any horse. It's got to have the crown on it. 24, man. <laughs> Understandably, at this point, 
Xerxes' lingering suspicions about Haman's motives and the full extent of his ambitions, they're kindled. Yeah. I mean, the man is thinking about this. He wants Xerxes' clothing. He wants his horse. Which you guys learned is inextricably linked to his right to rule Persia. Yeah. All the way back dating to his father. And there was an inscription that stood during these events. Yeah. Haman won the horse to bear the royal crest, the symbol of authority, the symbol of kingship while these things happen. But that was not all. Somebody say, that's not all. That's, that's not, not all. all. If all of those requests were not enough, Haman also asked to have all of the most noble princes robe him on the horse in the full view of the kingdom. Whoa. That'll get your suspicions raising. <laughs> One of the best moments in our story so far is that Xerxes requires Haman to do all of those things for Mordecai. Yeah, it was great. And he uses very pointed wording to do it. First time it occurs in the book of Esther. He said, do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew. It's beginning to sound more like a title than less like an insult. There are so many ways that Xerxes could have accomplished this. But we imagine him taking great delight in his own choice of wording. To do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew. We think he's needling him on purpose in probing his expression to see whether or not his suspicions are true. So as we're preparing to go into chapter 7, without a break, we're going to start by reading to you Chapter 6 in verse 12, and then through verse 15 with a few more comments, and then we'll go straight into chapter 7. That way we maintain our continuity. Go ahead, Justin. Pick up in 12, Justin Treister. All right. <laughs> verse 12. Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. And told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. You're going to jail now. Oh, yeah, you done did it. <laughs> you see, the advisor's statement tells you everything. Yep. Look at what the advisors and Zeresh said to him. Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. You see, the reader has been wondering this entire time if Haman's rise to power was based on deceiving Xerxes and stealing credit from Mordecai. But Haman's family... And advisors knew that to be the case the entire time. They probably helped him engineer it. Now when this secret cabal saw Mordecai honored and Haman having to lead him through the streets, they assumed that Xerxes was fully aware of Haman's fraudulent rise to power as well as his secret ambitions. So they tell him plainly, your downfall has started. You will surely come to ruin. The text actually says there, you are Fubar. <laughs> no, not, not, not really. Nick, what does it say in verse 14? Okay, verse 14 says, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived. 
and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. While his counselors were discussing his downfall, he suddenly had to go to a banquet that he had previously been eager to attend, and now he was quite eager to avoid. My God, what a difference 24 hours can make. Come on. So now, at this point, we're going to have Miss Jennifer pick up the story from chapter 7, verse 1, and we're going to read the whole chapter through verse 10, and then we're going to expound together. Are you all engaged? So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold male as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. <laughs> then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Carbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows as he prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Well, we certainly have some amazing things to get into. This is quite the climactic chapter, and I know many of you have been waiting for it. So let's begin with verse 1 and 2. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king asked again, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. So this is not the first time... Queen Esther has been asked these questions. We have a slide for you. Three solicitations for a petition and a request. The first time in Esther 5, verse 3, read, Then the king asked, What is it? What is it? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. And again, in Esther 5, 6, As they were drinking wine, the king asked it again, asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And what we just read in verse 2. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, 
your petition. It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Now this would be easy to miss. We're interacting with another culture here. But Xerxes has repeatedly asked a two-part question. You see it on the slide. That's, that's not by happenstance. And then followed it by an astounding promise. Mm. His patience with Esther and his obvious affection for her, it is being displayed through his actions and his temperance. Now the first facet of the repetitive question is always the same. What is it? Yeah. <laughs> or what is your condition is another way to say it. This is what is meant by the phrase, what is your petition? Xerxes can tell that something is unsettled in his wife. Oh. And his first and foremost inquiring about her state. You guys following me? Yeah. Yeah. The first one is inquiring about her state. So we're not going into the linguistics this evening. But if you would like to see the way the grammatical construction of the original Hebrew emphasizes this, you can consult the Jewish Publication Society commentary on Esther 5.3 and read about it. We have a tendency to read these questions as if they were redundant. They're not. The first one is about Esther, and the second one is about a request that would come from Esther. In English, petition and request are so close to each other these days that we don't make the distinction. But in Hebrew, from the grammatical construction, it's clear that there is a distinction. So let's get to the second facet of the repetitive question, because it's always the same. What is your request? After inquiring about her condition, her state of affairs, he wants to know what her request would be. This facet is Xerxes' attempt to discern what he might be able to do for Esther. Any husband ever asked your wife what was wrong? You didn't really care what was wrong. You mostly wanted to care about how you could fix it. In every case, the king shows great concern for his bride by asking about her condition first, and then he moves to ask what he can do for her. If all this were not enough, he repeats the same reassurance every time he asks these two questions. He says, even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Like the sky's the limit, honey, I will do anything in my power. Now, any husband in this room ought to be able to engage with the inherent tension of repeatedly asking a question that both shows personal concern and a willingness to act as long as it's within your power to to rectify the troubling circumstance. And that request keeps being delayed in its answer. Now this fact is exponentially compounded by the king's already present suspicion of Haman. Yeah. While he's asking her, he's already suspicious of Haman, which is always right there. And two of three times he's at the table. Yeah. This fact is also additionally multiplied by the unusual circumstances of these unorthodox banquets. Notice there's only three people at the banquet. (laughs) That is not even beginning to take into account the sleepless night full of research into every possibility that could be causing the queen's abundance of caution in fulfilling Xerxes' request. Can you guys imagine for a moment the bravery, the patience, even the discipline 
that it took Esther to instigate these compounding factors. This is perhaps one of the greatest displays of faith in Adonai that could be imagined. This is biblical beauty on a level that inspired apostles. Apostles like Peter, who wrote 1 Peter 3, and extolling all women of faith to entrust themselves to the one who judges justly. Her restraint, guys, her faith, her diligence to work in this manner, it provided Adonai with the medium in which he worked all things together for the good of those who love him. Come on. And who are according to his purpose, in a manner the Apostle Paul would be proud of. Also, we're about to read her response, but before we do, perhaps we could consider these concepts as Peter, which will be our first one, and as Paul, which will be our second one, and even James, which will be our third example. All three of those men of God wrote about them to all believers. So this is 1 Peter 2, picking up in verse 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate when he suffered. He made no threats. Instead, say instead. Instead. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Clearly, Peter is speaking of Jesus, but we ask you tonight, did Esther not display this same kind of trust? Yeah, absolutely. She didn't retaliate against Haman. She didn't make threats to Haman. She bore her fate as if it were in the hands of God rather than men. She proved this by refusing to plan or manipulate these events in any way. Now consider the transition into Peter's thoughts and consider Esther. I'm picking up in 3.1, and please, remember there is no chapter break. This is the continuation in Peter's mind of Christ's suffering. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. In the same way is how he starts it out. Esther was a wife that literally won over her husband to the will of God without doing it in fear or manipulation. Come on, somebody. In the same way, or just like Jesus, she entrusted herself to Adonai and let Adonai control the entire sequence of events. It would be hard to imagine that Peter was not thinking of Esther when he wrote these words in verse 2 and 3. If he's not thinking about Esther, you have to ask yourself, what other passage could he have been reflecting on to write what he wrote? In verse 2, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. You may remember back to Esther 2.15, where it says that Esther took nothing with her and won the favor of everyone who saw her, even the eunuchs. Certainly, Esther is a model for all believers, and especially women that are exhorted to trust their own husbands regardless of their present circumstances. Picking up in verse 4. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle 
and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Come on. You see, Esther's actions displayed the beauty of the inner self that is shaped by Adonai. This kind of beauty never, ever fades. And it is displayed in the showcase of a gentle and quiet spirit. As it turns out, Esther was not only of great worth in God's sight, but also of great worth to her people and the plan of salvation yes. as well. Yes. yes. Every person in this room should reflect on Esther's behavior in the same way that the Apostle Peter seems to be in his letter. Amen. So First Peter 3, the last verse, verse 5 in our passage. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. Man, the concept of making yourself beautiful. It is a beautiful concept. They were submissive to their own husbands. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right. And do not give way to fear. So as Peter finishes his thought, he refers back to the originator of the Jewish people, Sarah. This is because Sarah is the model from which Esther was able to learn and imitate real biblical beauty. Esther is in every definable way a daughter of Sarah. Now, let's keep you from getting misdirected by the mention of Sarah. Not only is she the progenitor of the people, and it's right that we point back to her, but notice that Peter says women of the past, not woman of the past. Notice that he says daughters, plural, not a daughter. He is reflecting on the line of women that came from Sarah and who is a better example than Esther of putting this into practice? So that was Peter. Let's take a look at Paul. This is Romans 8, picking up in 14. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. Yes. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Esther was ready to be killed for the will of God and for the hope of salvation for her people. There is no way to read the book of Esther with any level of enlightenment without concluding that she was led by the very Spirit of God. Come on. The Holy Spirit kept her from, <coughs> from speaking prematurely and compelled her to speak when it became appropriate and beneficial. This kind of Spirit-led speech is vastly underrated in our church world today. That's true. Esther submitted her, her voice in both restraint and in her actions to the very spirit of Adonai. Consider those two things. Sometimes we emphasize the spirit compelling you to speak. But how about the spirit telling you to shut your mouth? I would suspect that many of us do better with one of those two things, and very few of us have mastered both. Esther shows incredible mastery over both. Verse 24 in the same chapter of Romans. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen 
is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. As interact with this for a minute. Esther has no assurance of the outcome as she ventured into these perilous situations. Simply put, her hope could not be tangibly seen. No. However, she is demonstrably waiting patiently without giving way to fear or faithlessness and jumping the gun. Esther displayed the kind of beautiful biblical faith that saves people and nations. Wow, come on now. People and nations. nations. In this room, in this house, in LCM, this is the kind of faith that we must cultivate if we are to save the nations. Amen. You want to keep going with Paul's thought? Yes. Verse 26. <clears throat> in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. While Pentecostals and Charismatics are quick to believe that speaking in tongues is implied in this passage, it may be even more pertinent to display the leading of the Holy Spirit in this passage as Esther did. Because Esther did not know how Adonai would resolve the predicament of her, her and her people. But she did display inner groanings and longings for Adonai's resolution. Come on, man. She moved forward, determined to speak only when compelled by the Spirit, and was restrained in her speech when not prompted by Adonai's Spirit. The entire story hinges on this principle. And you know what? Your story likely does as well. Y'all yeah. want to continue? Yes. Look at verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Come on. Now this verse has been relegated to the absurd, cheesy, and childish realm of Sunday school application. Yep. But in the life of Esther, its timeless truth and infinite application becomes entirely apparent. Esther displays the sovereignty of God even in the minute details of dinner parties and guest lists. Her unshakable faith and Adonai provided the medium through which God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, it is hard to imagine that Paul, the Benjamite, same tribe, did not have reflections of Esther on his mind as he wrote those words for the first time. If you question that, then find for me the passage that you think he is writing from. Uh-huh. <laughs> you guys ready to move on to our third example? Yeah. Come on. This is Yaakov, the Lord's own brother. Everybody go to James chapter 3 with us. This passage is going to be verse 5 through 10. We're going to start out in verses 5 through 8 together. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Wow. 
The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. No what? No, no man. man. No man can tame the tongue. No man. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Guys, here, Yaakov, James, he's reflecting on the lack of inspiration in the speech of mankind and the devastating effects that it has on the world around us. He literally said, but no man can tame the tongue. And yet we see Esther, who happens to be a woman, by the way, doing exactly that. Her speech was restrained by the Spirit and also compelled by the Spirit of God. Surely this is an example that we must all learn to emulate. Yeah. Let's uh, pick up in verse 9. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Ooh. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Now think back to Esther. Esther was not a fountain of salt water followed by a sprinkling of fresh that attempts to make up for the vile sewage that is spewed from her mouth. No, this book only displays fresh water flowing from her mouth and stands at the pinnacle of every spirit-filled believer's aspirations. It was not only Esther's speech that stands apart in excellence, but it was also her actions. Yeah. We're going to consider some following statements in James 4, 13. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city. Spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. Because 24 hours can make a huge difference. Yes. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So why did Esther ask for a banquet? She asked it for a banquet because her life was a mist, a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. She was limited in her understanding of how Adonai would resolve the situation. She doesn't know the total plan, but she resolved herself to operate within his revealed will as she searched for the plan. Saints, there's a message for us inside of that. She did not determine her course in advance, lay out the plot, lay out the plan of his revelation because it's his. But she stayed disciplined in her actions for his will and knew that it would reveal itself to her as she obeyed. Neither was Esther paralyzed with inaction. She didn't sit around waiting for 77 confirmation. She responded to the revealed will. She was not paralyzed with inaction, but rather she took the steps that Adonai did show her. And only those steps until he caused her to know what must next take place. 
Come on. Is your level of admiration for Esther growing? Yes. It's our prayer that your level of imitation for her also grows. As we jump back into verse 3, look at the two facets of Xerxes' repetitive question one more time. You see it on your screen? You've thought that there were three times that this question occurred, but in reality, it's six questions. He asked her three times about her state, and he asked her three times about her request. That is what is really going on in the text. So Mr. Lennon's going to pick up in verse 3, and we're going to help wrap that up for you in uh, an explanation. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favors with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. This is my what? Petition. And spare my people. This is my request. This is what? My request. Now, we're about to get into deep waters. I know in advance some of you won't understand it, but I'm hoping that you will eventually. What is Esther's condition? Her life is presently at risk, and now the king knows it. This is her stating her petition. What can the king do for her? Her people are presently under a death sentence, and she asks for them to be spared. This is her stating her request, her only request. So often, fear and insecurity compel the weak believer to answer every question other than the one that was actually asked. If Esther were typical of most women, she would have begun with the extraneous details relating to the story and the history of her predicament, but she doesn't. She answers the two-part question with a precise two-part answer. As disheartening as the answer is to the king, the conciseness of the answer is both powerful and effective. Let's listen to Matthew 6, 6 through 8, because we want to hone in on the conciseness of the answer. It'll help your marriage, I promise. Verse 6, But when you pray... Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father, who is unseen. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now listen to this. Proverbs ten nineteen says, where, where words are many, sin is not absent. Man, all too often, fear and insecurity, which is what we call it, but what it really is, is faithlessness. Yep. They cause us to answer questions that were not asked, Ooh. and it causes us to elaborate in ways that are not led of the Spirit. What this reveals is that we do not, say we do not. We do not. This reveals that we do not believe that the Father knows what we need, and we do not trust his character to provide us with it. So we feel like we have to say many words and convince him like he doesn't know. Or your husband. Now this shows up every time, every time that we feel the need to explain all of our motivators. Well, you just don't know my motivators. 
And we feel the need to, to explain all of the surrounding circumstances when the king or the husband has already said that he wants to give us half the kingdom. Wow. Yeah, in these situations, what is happening, whether you are a male or female, is fear and insecurity, which is faithlessness, is just leaking out of you through your mouth. And you don't even realize it's happening. Be disciplined to answer the actual question that was asked. Be disciplined to know that your father knows what you need. Amen. And that whatever authority is asking you the question has the very best intention for you up front and does not need you to litigate the answer. Yes. Guys, this is so pertinent to us tonight. And the scripture is going to continue to help us here. In James chapter 5 and verse 12. You know what's funny is I can see everybody's faces in here, Pastor Nick. And I know that Bosch got it. <laughs> the rest of you will get it sometime next week. But I promise you, we are helping you right now. Yeah. James 5.12 says, Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes. And your no, no. Or you will be condemned. Woo-hoo. Oh my goodness, is that harsh? No, that's true. Verse 13. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. That easy. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Amen. The Lord will raise him up. Come on. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Come on. Yeah. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Listen to this next line. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Guys, we would all do well to crucify fear and insecurity which is actually faithlessness, mm -hmm. those things that drive us to irrational speech. Crucify it. <clears throat> a righteous man or woman knows the Father and is also known by the Father. Amen. The righteous man or woman trusts in the character of the Father and they learn to appeal to the will of God and not many words expressed on the subject. Esther's concise answer it's powerful and effective because it does not rely on the abundance of her verbal barrage, but rather it relies on her trust in the will of her king. Oh, Nick, I think because we've pastored here a while, you should just read that last line again and you lay hands on yourself right now and ask God to help you understand this. Listen to this one more time. Esther's concise answer. That's the thing that's actually powerful and effective. And it is because she did not rely on the abundance of her verbal barrage. But rather, she relied on the will of God and her trust in his will in her life. Amen. You're not listening to me. That's because you are not expounding on the answer to a question that I have asked. I already have your best intention in mind. I am already seeking the face of God about the direction for the family. This is just extraneous detail that we do not need. 
Am I the only one that's had those conversations? No. Am I the only one that's been on both sides of those conversations? No. We're striking at something here that is immensely practical. Amen. If you were in Esther's situation, could you have constrained your answer to simply what the king asked? Or would you have started with your birth story and the way that you are the way that you are and everything that's happened to you in your life up to that point to make sure that you manipulate, I mean, that he understood your predicament? Do you get the level of faith that she is showing in God? Yeah. Do you get how often you do not show that level of faith in your God? In the same way we entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. That will eliminate 95% of all marital discord in this church. And the other 5% that is not driven from marital discord, it will eliminate discord between you and any authority that is asking you a question. So it takes courage to be concise because you have to lay down your will and submit yourself to the will of the Father. We want to talk to you about the Hebrew wording of Esther's response because it's also telling. Do y'all want to learn about it? Yes. It's not really grant me my life, but rather let it be given me my soul. Give him my life. No, she's saying, let it be given to me my very soul. This is because Esther's nephesh, or her soul, has been completely submitted to Adonai and Xerxes, and she is acknowledging that it is not in her hands presently. See, what you think is her making a request is not. It's her state. It's the petition. My own soul is not within my hand. They are submitted to my God and they are submitted to you, Xerxes. It is the state of Esther. It is not a request. It is a fact of her present condition. That's good. That is tremendously different than the way you have been reading that, and I know that in advance. So you should wrestle with that. What is your state? What is your condition? Yeah. There is so much power available to the believer who will submit their mind, will, and emotions to the will of God. Come on. And we could preach the rest of tonight and into tomorrow on this subject. And we could do it from just the Psalms. But tonight we want to highlight something that you'll be familiar with, and it's Psalm 25. As I pick up in Psalm 25, I want you to wrestle with the concept of soul. Not my obedience. Not just my thoughts, not just my feelings, but all of my mind, will, and emotions. Everything that makes you up as a human being. So verse 1, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. (laughs) See, we love to read that verse. Yeah, poetic. Especially when we're in trouble. But what you mean by that is I'm giving you a tenth of me. I'm giving you my actions, or I'm giving you warm, fuzzy feelings. It means... All of you. And if it is not your actions, your feelings, and your thoughts, your soul is not entrusted to him. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, my whole being. In you I trust, O my God. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. 
See, the psalm presumes that there are enemies surrounding, just like the context of our chapter tonight. No one who's hope in you will ever be put to shame. But they will be put to shame. Who? Those who are treacherous without excuse. This evening we're not teaching in the psalms, but the word treachery has to do with betraying human relationships, exactly like the context of Esther. Verse 4. Show me your ways, O Lord, Teach me your paths. See, this is the cry of a soul that is actually submitted to the Lord. You show me your ways. Because my ways are in your hands. I do what you say. I think what you think. And I feel what you feel. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my Savior. And my hope is in you all day long. How often? All All day day long. Esther has literally lifted up her nefesh. That's what the text itself says. Or her soul before Adonai and her husband. This is who she is speaking to. A woman like this, this kind of woman, will never be put to shame. Nor will her enemies triumph over her. Instead, the Lord will show her his ways. In the course of human events, that Adonai is currently at work in just like Romans 8, 28 says. Esther's hope was in Adonai, and it was in it all day long, no matter the circumstance. So this was the state of Esther. This was the petition of Esther. But what was Esther's one and only request in this dialogue? It's the phrase, and spare my people. This is my request. That's incredible. Powerful and effective prayer is always based on requests for the welfare of others. Paul described the attitude of Jesus in the book of Philippians. It's one of the very few things that the 2011 got right. The 1984 butchered this verse. The 2011 says, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. That was too much for the translators of the 1984. They said, looking not only to your own interest, but also to the others. The 2011 gets it right. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Do you hear the difference in that statement? James also tells us, why it seems that so many of our prayers are ineffective and totally powerless. James 4, 1 through 3. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Uh Uh-huh. You want something, but don't get it. Amen. You kill (laughs) and covet, but you cannot have what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Oh! (laughs) That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, we could literally spend the entire night showing you how the book of Esther is echoed in the Newer Testament. But that would not be time efficient for us tonight. But suffice it to say, people who doubt the verbal plenary inspiration of Esther simply don't understand its connections with the rest of the biblical text. 
This point would be made even more clear if we went into the textual anomalies within the manuscripts, but we are saving that for session 10 of Esther. Because <laughs> we want you to come back and stay till the end. <laughs> but for now, let's read Philippians 4, 6, and then we'll get back to our chapter. So this is going to cap off this particular portion of our study. You guys ready for this? Yeah. Yeah. Do not be anxious about anything. Even the annihilation of your people. Anything. <laughs> Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition. Petition. Yeah. With thanksgiving, present your request. request. Oh, yes. They're waking up now, Nick. Present your request to God. Guys, I don't think there's ever been a better practical implementation of this particular concept that, than what Paul says right here to the Philippian church. Uh, this is a clear reflection on what we're learning in Esther. By the way, the words right here in the Septuagint are the same in Esther and in the Greek in the Philippians right here in this verse. How right. about that? Whatever's happening, no anxiety. <laughs> No anxiety about anything, even if your people are about to be exterminated. Oh, and when you present your condition to the Lord or your Lord, and you present yourself, your request to him, it comes with thanksgiving. Amen. How would that change your current situation Come if on. you came with a bunch of thankfulness for the Thanks condition? For and the request that you are presenting. Luke, while you're engaging with all of these things, and we, we're trying to get you to engage with them, Mr. Linton's getting ready to go to verse 4. Understand when Peter said, a quiet and gentle spirit, he did not mean somebody who never opens their mouth. He meant the inner voice. Those battles in your emotions are stilled. It's the same way that God can tell Moses to tell the people to be still and move forward. Quiet your inner fears by submitting yourself to the Lord. And this is beautiful. And when your request then is on the behalf of someone else, you can know that if you do it in Thanksgiving, he is going to bring it about. He works in all things for people who act like this. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we were, if we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Okay, so we would like to comment on this verse with a two level, two levels of analysis. How many? Two. The first is that Haman had literally offered ten thousand talents of his own money for the annihilation of the Jews. This fact could be seen as Xerxes selling them for destruction. However, Xerxes didn't accept the money. So on the first level of analysis, the king got a bad deal because he sold the Jews for nothing, and even more, and more so, would not benefit from them as slaves because they were sold to death. The idea is that Haman took advantage of the king's inattentiveness regarding a relatively obscure segment of people within his kingdom. But now Xerxes is realizing that they are an important and productive part of his kingdom, and Esther is a part of them. So these things are certainly true and would have cemented the king's anger with Haman. 
because Xerxes would have felt manipulated into a bad decision for his kingdom. That's not true. These revelations probably also served to feed Xerxes' suspicion and anger with Haman over taking credit for Mordecai's achievement and averting the assassination of Flyback earlier in the book. But we think that there is even more at play in this verse. Would y'all like to go deeper? Yeah. Somebody say two levels. Two, two levels. levels. Level number one, we could just heard Peyton articulate, is that this affected the entire kingdom and he's realizing that he was manipulated into a bad decision for the kingdom. You guys got that? He's a monarch. It's not just about his own personal interest. It was bad for the kingdom at large that he's a steward over. Now, I bet you've read this over and over again and you thought these verses were just a euphemism. Esther looking at the king and saying, if we were sold to slaves, I would say nothing. Well, like we said, we believe that there is more at play. Are you ready for the second level of analysis? Yes. Second level of analysis is where we place most of our emphasis. And you know if we're doing it, it's because it's what's right. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> Esther took three days to repent and fast prior to going to Xerxes the first time. She then went through the first banquet. She's had a great deal of time on her hands. A great deal of time to count the cost and consult the scripture itself. Her answer to Xerxes reveals that her request was entirely based on the writing of Daniel. What? <laughs> Which you happen to just go through. Yeah. Funny how that works. She would accept slavery. Because Daniel said that they would be under the Persian Empire, ruled by them. What did you think after all the spirit-led moments, Esther's now lying to the king? No. She's articulating that she would accept Persian rule and dominion just as Daniel said it would happen. But what she would not accept, what she could not tolerate, what was not reasonable was the annihilation of her people because God said he would redeem them and they have to be alive for it to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Esther appeals to Xerxes with a request that was totally dependent on the facts that she discovered in the word of God as Daniel recorded in his prophecies. Do you mean that she was Torah observant and spirit led? Do you mean to tell me that the word of God and the spirit co-witnessed and it was effective and powerful? Come on. Yes. Oh, yeah. Daniel 7 verse 17 says the four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints, which I don't know how you could read as any way other than the Jewish people in Esther's time, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. See, Esther learned from Daniel that Israel would be subject to Medo-Persia as slaves. Yeah. And that that was the declared will of God. However, the scripture also said that Israel would receive and possess the kingdom forever and ever. This means that Esther's request of Xerxes to spare her people is an appeal derived from knowing the will of God for the future of Israel. In fact, 
It's declared in the written word that was in her possession. Esther was not being coy. She was not being manipulative. She was not using political language to butter Xerxes up. She really would not have petitioned or requested of Xerxes to change Israel's status as slaves because the word of God declared they were supposed to be wow. slaves. Yeah. However, somebody say however. However. She was compelled to request of the king that their lives be spared because the word of God declares they must possess the kingdom. And this simply cannot happen if they were all annihilated. Yeah. This is the word of God in action. All right, let's pick up in verse 5. King Xerxes asked, asked, asked. Get it. <laughs> One more time. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Oh, so, y'all going to have to wake up for this part. Come on. Are you guys okay, still breathing? Because none of you have this right. So you're going to have to wake up for this part. Yes. All right. So, so many commentators that in our view haven't properly understood the setting take this to be a legitimate question. They read this as Xerxes still has absolutely no idea what is going on or why Haman is at this banquet. We believe those old and tired interpretations to be flawed, obviously. <laughs> Fatally flawed. We have been making the case for weeks that Xerxes has had a growing suspicion of Haman. We have been making the case for Xerxes researching the Chronicles of Persia because of his concern over what Esther may want to share with him. We have also been suggesting that Xerxes' suspicion of Haman is demonstrated in the skillful omission of Mordecai's name in a question designed to reveal Haman's heart and intentions towards the monarchy. We also showed you in the text itself that Zeresh, Haman's wife, and the counselors believed Haman to be a doomed man prior to the second banquet. Come on. They literally said his downfall had begun. If they knew, do you really think Xerxes was blind to it? Now let us show you another way to read Xerxes' question that takes into account the context and the setting of this event. Are you ready for it? Yeah. Yeah. Guys, you're going to want to tune in to this slide here from United Bible Societies. It says, the setting is everything. The beginning of this verse in Hebrew is literally. All right, listen to this. Then King Ahasuerus said, and he said to Queen Esther. Some interpreters think that a scribe mistakenly repeated the verb. So they translate only one of the two verbs, but no. Yo, boo! There's actually two verbs present in the Hebrew. Occasionally, the repetition is taken as a strengthened form that may be interpreted, he demanded it. Look at this highlighted yellow portion. It is also possible that the writer intended to build suspense. As the reader wonders for an instant whether the king was speaking to Esther or to Haman. He said, and he said to Esther. Since the same 
repetition of the verb he said occurs in the Hebrew of Ezekiel 10, 2. It is unlikely that it is a scribal mistake in this verse. In oh, thank, thank God. Thank you, Captain Obvious, wow. for the journey into the blatantly well-known. We don't get it, so it must be a scribal error. No, that's not how we approach the sacred word of God. Apparently, this was an emphatic Hebrew oh. idiom. The king's questions are very brusque. brusque. They're reported in the form of direct quotation. Who is this, and where is this one? He who his heart has filled him to do thus. So remember, only three people are at this banquet. Yep. <laughs> They're drinking in a Persian style of dining. On their the king lunch. knows it's not him! <laughs> I mean, unless he's Joe Biden, then he knows the answer. <laughs> is it me? You have to picture that he is not a, a brain-dead automaton no. sitting there that has no idea what planet he's on. <laughs> Keep that in mind. He, he, he knows what's going on, and they're drinking in a Persian style of dining, leaning on their left elbows, reclined on the floor. Picture that for just a second. They ate on their left elbows, just like Jews would do for centuries thereafter. The Persians ate reclining, feet stretched out on their left elbow, and they ate, or in this case, they're only drinking, drinking with their right hand. There's only so many arrangements of that where you are not eye to eye with at least one person. And there's only three at the table. So their pro proximity to one another is in a manner of reclined, uh, and it's very, very close. So heads at the, their heads at the head of the table, and their feet are going the other direction. The literal phrase, then Xerxes said, and he said to Queen Esther, should be taken to mean that he is looking straight at Haman while feeding a question to Esther. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Yeah. Have you ever said something to one person, but you were really hoping the one next to them was listening intently? Yes. Yes. That's what's happening here. So can you imagine what it would be like for Haman if Xerxes is staring at him when he says, Who is this? Who is this? And where is this one? This one! He who his heart has filled him to do thus. Now we don't have to not have time to strain very hard to or we don't have to strain very hard to imagine that Haman was straining to avoid filling his pants with excrement. <laughs> the king is laying on his left elbow. The arrangement places Haman directly. They're making eye contact, yeah. <laughs> and he said, and also asked Esther. Right. He is speaking to. Haman, when he says this, while asking Esther the question. Wow. He's been watching this man, trying to determine from his tone, his demeanor, if there were any tells that his suspicions were true. And he now knows that they are. Look, to help you compile this for a moment, the actual verbs here indicate that we are speaking to more than one person. He said, he said, only three people there. Then what does he say? Who is this? Somebody give me a finger. Hold your hand up. Who is this? Where is this one? Who is he? 
three questions with two verbs indicating we are speaking to multiple people, and there are only three people, including Xerxes, at the table, and the other one is his wife. So with that in mind, look, we are of the opinion that this is not just a scribal mistake and that the word of God was translated improperly and it cannot be understood. We don't believe that that's a valid method of interpretation for genuine believers. The text itself literally has Xerxes speaking and also speaking to Esther at the same time. Esther is not even the primary. It's the secondary verb being addressed. This already awkward banquet just reached a whole new level because the king of the world is aware that something's going on and he's not just speaking to his wife while they're together. This awkward banquet that has reached a whole new level is because Xerxes is aware of something and Haman now knows that Xerxes is aware. Haman now has come to the revelation that Xerxes knows what he has been up to since chapter 2, and it's coming to a head, and there is nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. Now, saints, if you doubt this interpretation, you would be foolish to do so. But you could go back and look over Zeresh and the counselor's speech to Haman. They knew this was going to happen from the beginning, and they said so point blank. They knew this before Haman even went to the banquet and declared it to be so. One of the reasons that this detail is overlooked is because the opinion of Xerxes is so low in the minds of scholars and interpreters. They have no trouble viewing him as just blatantly stupid, unable to see what is right in front of him, as rash and temperamental. They would have you believe that, again, the king of the known world, the guy who's managing 127 provinces, the leader of the empire, Xerxes has not been able to put together any of the details of the odd guest list, any of the details of the fraudulent rise to power of Haman, any of the details of the ambition that Haman displays requesting the symbols of his own monarchy. None of that. He couldn't get any of it. They would have you believe that he's put together none of the setting, none of the discussion, and that he's completely oblivious. Well, this is patently false when you examine it. A careful examination of his character in the scripture itself, in the book, shows that those understandings are blatantly unjustified, and they're the result of cultural bias and Greek scholars. The actual picture is that Xerxes is discerning, that he is wise, that he has skillfully asked questions previously to reveal things that have been concealed in Haman's heart. Remember, once again, there are only three people at this banquet having this discussion. Do you remember the tactical brilliance that Xerxes displayed in chapter 6? Where he's doing his research and then he omits Mordecai's name from a question to Haman so that he would hear what is in Haman's heart? Yeah. Now he's right in front of him. So we're going to get to Xerxes' intentional heart revelations, the way that he probed and prodded Haman. I put them on a slide for you. We put them in the Young's literal just to help us with this a little bit. In Esther 6, 6, And Haman cometh in, and the king said to him, What to do with the man in whose honor the king hath delighted? Remember, this is where he has omitted Mordecai's name. He's just realized that Mordecai was overlooked. 
and he doesn't mention his name. And Haman saith in his heart, To whom doth the king delight to honor more than myself? Okay, when you consider that context, Xerxes' question is brilliant. And it's brilliant because it reveals something about Haman. Haman then goes on to say all of the things that he really wants. Now, in chapter 7 and verse 5, look at the literal wording as these two men are sitting eye to eye, rather reclining on their left sides, eye to eye. And the king, Azaharis, saith, he saith to Esther the queen, Who is he? This one. And where is this one? He whose heart hath filled him to do so. Haman's actions have already shown Xerxes what was in his heart. We believe that the common misconception that portrays Xerxes as a near buffoon is exactly the opposite of the biblical portrayal. On the contrary, the text is presenting him as a discerning king that is capable of revealing the hidden motives of a man's heart. Throughout this book, Xerxes is a type of Adonai, and you need to be careful in your interpretation with that in mind. Xerxes knows that we are talking about Haman, and he looks into his eyes as a piercing indictment, right as the queen, his beloved wife, says, Verse 6. Esther says, The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Come on. Can you feel that? Esther's boldness is admirable. And it shows that she did not lack the courage to do this in any of the previous settings. So the question is, why does she do it now? Well... It's because she can see that her husband also has the revelation. Come on, ladies! Come on, it's a bride reflecting her husband. It's the moon reflecting the light of the sun. She sees that he has it, and so she goes ahead and pronounces it. Amen. See, they were always working together. She was never intending on overrunning him with what she feels. Instead, in this situation, her gentleness... Her quiet spirit and her submissiveness has won because they are now working together. She left room for her husband to get a revelation. Amen. Come on. Now, if we were right last week, and we were. We were. (laughs) Then Haman was terrified before he got to the banquet. But now he is completely and totally overcome with his fear. Yeah. In fact... The literal Hebrew in this verse is, and he was terrified from before the face of the king and queen. Now we find this humorous because Haman has always wanted all the eyes in the kingdom on him. But now they are on him, but not in the way that he wanted. It's a difference between being famous and being infamous. Pick up in verse 7. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman 
realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Ooh, king already decided his fate. Xerxes does, does not investigate in any way. You guys remember back in Esther chapter 2, verse 23, the plot was investigated and found to be true. Guys, here there is no investigation. It's because the king has suspected this for some time and has already come to his conclusion. Come on now. And his wife helped him to come to that conclusion. Haman does not appeal to Xerxes because Haman knew. (laughs) Xerxes has been on to me for some time now. In fact, my own wife, my own counselors, they told me that this was going to happen. Haman only stays to beg Esther. The only reason that Haman stays is to beg Esther. The shocking part of all of this for Haman is not that Xerxes knows. He thought that that might be the case when he left his house that evening. The shocking part is actually that Esther is a Jew and she has turned out to be against him. Which, when the eunuchs came to terrify and hurry him to the banquet, he was already trembling. He, he already thought Xerxes probably knew. What he had no idea was that Esther was a Jew and that she knew all that he had been doing as well. That was the shocking part. We've actually missed the shocking part of the story. So while it's understandable that Haman begs for his life, it's also further proof that his condemnation is deserved. What? Listen to me on this one. A repentant man does not beg for the alleviation of penalty, but rather the transformation of his character. As you know, this practice only deepens his pit. Um, We must learn to ask for transformation, not for a lack of penalty. Saints, this is something we need to get into our soul, and I promise I'm personally wrestling with it. A man will reap what the man has sown. It's an indisputable fact. Even in Jesus, it's an indisputable fact. It necessitates that we ask for transformation, not freedom from penalty and consequence. Saints, Jacob killed an animal and lied to his father pretending to be Esau. Years later, Jacob's sons killed an animal and lied to him, pretending that Joseph was dead. (laughs) Pharaoh, Pharaoh gave orders to drown the Jewish baby boys. Then later, one day his army was drowned in the Red Sea. Hear this one. David secretly took his neighbor's wife and committed adultery. David's own son, Absalom, took his father's concubines and openly committed adultery with them. David killed Bathsheba's husband. And later, three of David's own sons were slain, Absalom, Amnon, and Adonijah. See, it's real easy for me to interact with Pharaoh. But how about the believing men? How about this one? Saul of Tarsus engaged and encouraged the stoning of Stephen. He was standing there giving approval. When Paul became the missionary that we all know and love, he was stoned at Lystra. See, friends,
from penalty only encourages bad behavior. We don't need an alleviation of consequences. In fact, it would be bad if we were to get it. Because what we need is transformation and for a cry to come out of us that says, change the man that I am. I think I, I think I stumbled across a passage that spoke to this. I know Matthew Piro loves it. This is Romans 12.1. Yeah. Therefore, I urge, like I make every effort, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve of what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Our self-induced hardships are meant to cause us to cry out for ongoing transformation. And if we are alleviated from their penalties, then we run the risk of persisting in them. So it is a kindness to feel the penalty of your error. It causes you to cry out for a changed soul, not a changed circumstance. Listen to Galatians 6, 7 through 8. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Man, that's strong. A man reaps what he sows. Man, every alleviation from penalty without a transformation is mocking God. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Do you know what Galatians and Romans have in common? I will give you a hint. They were not written to unbelievers. This was written to the Christian community. So those of you that believe that because of Jesus' work on the cross, you are now free from all penalty of sin, you have misunderstood something that you learned to parrot from theologians. You are not free from all penalty of sin. You are free from the eternal judgment that would come on you. From sin. But if you make a mistake and a car rolls over your foot because of your negligent behavior, your foot is still going to hurt. That is a part of the penalty of sin. This is a vast misunderstanding in the body of Christ. And this ruins your repentance. You're not actually repenting of your character and asking God to change it. You are sorry for the result of what you are now reaping and are asking God to alleviate you from it. We have to correct this in the body of Christ. Look, Haman was degraded just when he thought he had reached the goal of his ambition. That is scary. He perished on the very stake that he had erected for his enemy. Haman was characterized by boundless pride, boundless ambition, and boundless cruelty. One of the many reasons for this 
is that he likely avoided all penalties in his life for his own wretched behavior, right up until the point that he could no longer outrun the justice of God. George Soros had appointed the district attorney, and he always got off with no-cost bail. Went back and shot some more people the next day, ran over some more people the next day, until he could no longer outrun the justice of God. I'm going to read a quote to you by what, who appears to be a German, Friedrich von Lagau. Oh, it's good. Don't, don't, don't let his name throw you. And I'm going to read it slowly. The mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceedingly, exceeding small. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness he grinds all. You see, God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. And yet, he will remember every single exact thing, and he will grind it all. A man will reap what he sows. Don't be deceived. Remember in that vein, Pharaoh perished in the Red Sea. But he didn't think it was going to happen right up until it did. What about the dogs? They licked the blood of Ahab in Samaria. Do you think Ahab saw it coming? No, He did not think he would reap what he sowed. Herod was eaten of worms while he was still on his throne. Let us cry out for transformation now. Let us actually cry out for God to change our hearts before the justice of God catches up with our actions. Psalm chapter 7 verse 14 says, Whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they have made. Wow. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. They're reaping what they have sown. I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. I will sing the praises of the name of the Lord Most High. Guys, our praise for Adonai, it largely stems from his righteousness being credited to us. But it doesn't stop there. And it can't stop there for us tonight. His process within us begins to make it a reality. His righteousness begins to sow into us a reality that is shown and produced in our own actions. That is the definition of what transformation is all about. Amen. Let's continue in verse 8. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch. Wait, he was what? He was falling. Oh, okay. I want to make sure I caught that word. (laughs) Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. So it should be no surprise that Haman is falling. This guy seems to mess up everything. But this was also forecasted in advance by his wife, Zeresh, the prophetess. Interesting. Listen to this note by United Bible Society. Perhaps there is even a play on words and a touch of irony. Just a smidge. Just a little bit. Since earlier, Haman is warned that he will surely fall. Fall before Mordecai. You see comments on 613. And here, the author describes him as falling before Esther. So the UBS commentators got this one right. There is irony in the prediction of Zeresh 
and the counselors regarding Haman's downfall having begun prior to the second banquet. Now at the conclusion of the banquet, the fall has been completed. Ooh. Why don't we keep growing, brother? Yeah, we got 16 minutes, but they're going to be good. Oh, yeah. yeah. They've already been good. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen? While she is still with me in the house, going to jail now. As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs attending the king, said, "A gallows seventy-five feet high stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king." Now, as you can imagine, there are a great deal of things that we could comment on in this verse, and they would be worth doing. We won't have the time to do them all justice, though. The word translated as molest, you should know, is Strong's number 3533, kabash. And it is translated in the Adamic mandate of Genesis 128 as subdue, as in subdue the earth. There is a deeper picture going on here regarding Amalek's desire to subdue the people of God and the mandate of the plan of God's people to subdue Amalek and every other subversive force that exists on the earth and is in opposition to God's plan. Yeah. Now, on another subject, we did find Harbona's comments particularly interesting. Harbona! <laughs> Esther 7-9 from the ESV. Then Harbona, yeah. one of the units <laughs> in attendance on the king, said... Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. (laughs) We find it kind of fun that Harbona speaks up without solicitation from Xerxes, without urging from Esther. And certainly not at Haman's request. (laughs) He volunteers this information about the impaling pole right out there. This is truly priceless. Apparently the servants in the house were delighted that Haman's concealed deeds were now being revealed. There's a picture there if you look for it. Let's focus a little bit on the phrase Xerxes used in pronouncing judgment. We love the LXX. Sometimes. (laughs) The king said, hang him on it. Let Haman be hanged. The Greek is literally, let him be crucified on that. That's how the LXX translates this verse. While you're thinking about that, and we are going to come back to it, let's finish verse 10, and then make some observations And we'll share the balance of our time through the medium of shadows and types with as much frequency and fluidity as our time span allows. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Man, the crucifixion of Haman caused the fury of the king to subside. Come on, somebody. We could preach on that for an eternity. But first... Before we do that, we need to glory in the good character of Esther. Yes. Yeah. Esther completely placed her nefesh, her soul, her mind, will, and emotions in the hands of God and her husband. Oh, yes! Wow. Esther completely and boldly identified herself 
with the persecuted people of God. Esther interceded for their welfare, even though it meant death for her. Esther willingly accepted slavery, even if it meant that the purposes of God would be achieved for Israel. Esther was also more than willing to die for the salvation of God's people. And Esther heroically united herself with her people like Moses and Christ himself. One blessing after another. We're going to take a look at Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. This is about Moses. It says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. Wow. Rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ. As of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. As Moses himself regarded the disgrace that he received in Christ. As of greater treasure than any of the treasures that he could have experienced because of the world. Both Moses and Esther alike set aside their royalty in order to put on true royalty for the benefit of God's people. That's Malchut. Come on. Yeah, listen to 2 Corinthians (laughs) 5.15. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Both Jesus and Esther face death to save God's people. And what they do in that is they show us a truly royal path to live by. Come on. You guys ready for a type that is worth meditating on? Yeah. Yeah. The identification and public outing of the adversary and the accuser throughout the book of Esther has profound parallels for Satan's exposure on the cross. Mordecai's public repentance... And Esther's putting on of royalty, when taken together, teaches profound lessons about the state of mankind and the only, the one and only possible solution to our predicament. You have to take them together. We want to repent like Mordecai, and we want to put on royalty like Esther. They have to be taken together. We don't walk around as only sinners. We also put on royalty. And we go into the presence of the king. We do both. Now, a shadow and type that we didn't think that many of you would have picked up as bright as you are, and you're the best Bible students I've ever been around, regarding the garden in the book of Esther. It only occurs in two places. The garden is in the opening chapter. I would like to read that to you. This is Esther 1, 5 through 6. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days, almost like a creation week. In the enclosed garden of the king's palace, for all of the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa, the garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. They were couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Now, it doesn't take a great Bible scholar to see the ways in which that setting 
is reminiscent of the replica that is the tabernacle on earth of the one that is in heaven. That is how the book of Esther opens, a feast inside of a garden. That's beautiful, isn't it? Both settings are heavenly, but they're on earth. Both times that the garden is mentioned. This is the first mention of the garden in Esther. There's only one other place that the garden is mentioned in Esther, and it perfectly parallels the Genesis account. Moving on to Esther 7, 7 through 8. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. As in outside the garden. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's fate. You see, just like Genesis 3, where man was outside the garden, because it was revealed that humans were sinners deserving the judgment of God. Just like you see in this second mention. The second mention of a garden in Esther places Xerxes in the garden and Haman outside the garden. This is the predicament of all mankind. Haman outside the garden. The heavenly garden of God is a place that he dwells. And you have been placed outside the garden because you are like Haman. But how? How am I like Haman? (laughs) We're glad you asked. (laughs) You have ambition that did not come from your king. You've concealed things from the king, but he's aware of it. You've acted contemptuously toward his people through acts of omission and acts of commission. You've boasted about blessings in your life as proof of your right standing with the king, even when many of them were the product of the flesh, just like Haman's sons were. You've often filled your heart with pride in thinking, man, I should be elevated for that. You've accepted credit for things that you did not personally create. You've wanted to be seen as more associated with his monarchy than your own actions merit. You've often cried out for relief from penalty rather than transformation. So church, there is only one way to re-enter the garden and see the king's fury subside. You remember this slide. It says, let him be crucified on that. To re-enter the garden and have the king's fury subside, you must be crucified. When Jesus was crucified, he did become a sin offering for you, but that is conditional upon you being crucified on that cross you carry daily. Haman, the Haman inside of you, must be crucified so that you can be resurrected as the man born of heaven that you are actually called to be. In this way, Jesus set you an example to be followed, and simply memorializing his accomplishment does not do that. Wow. Right. You've heard all of your life 
he was crucified so that you didn't have to be. That is not true. He was crucified as an example of what you must be. Amen. We do not simply memorialize an event 2,000 years ago. We imitate that glorious act of obedience every day or you cannot enter the great garden of God. You still stand outside of it and the king says, you must be crucified on that pole. The Bible begins in a garden and it ends in a garden. The story of Esther is an interesting one. There's a little bit of Esther and Haman in every single one of us, but Haman must be crucified to be able to go with the king. The chiasm of the Bible, the entire narrative itself, is the crucifixion. The one unparalleled moment that reveals Haman at work, that reveals Satan at work. This is so that we can re-enter the king's garden. Exposing what must be crucified so that we can go into Amen. his presence and dwell with him. Amen. Thanks. Do you remember that Haman's head was covered in grief in chapter 6? Went home and whined to his wife and his head was covered in grief? Yeah. The first tangible time he starts to feel the effects of his own sin. But rather than coming clean and asking for transformation, he runs back home to his family. That sin went undealt with. And by chapter 7, his head is literally covered in an executioner's back. Wow. That quickly. You don't know how long you have to deal with something that the king is exposing. Come on. But when he points it out, you better run to him quickly and Amen. ask him to transform it. Tonight we say let the house of God deal with our Haman issues before grief over the matter, sadness and guilt over the matter turns into gallows before all of the servants in God's house. Because it is the nature of how this works. We'd like to turn the meeting over to the pastor. That's good. I'm going to read you the list that these men shared with us just mere moments ago. And I'll tell you honestly my exact interaction with it. You have ambition that did not come from the king. True. You have concealed things from the king and he is aware of it. True. You have acted contemptuously towards his people through acts of omission and commission. True. I mean about me. You've boasted about blessings in your life as proof of your right standing with the king, even when many of them were the product of the flesh like Haman's sons. True. You have often filled your heart with pride in thinking that you should be elevated. True. You've accepted credit for things that you did not create. True. You have wanted to be seen as more associated with his monarchy than your actions merit. True. You have often cried out for relief from penalty rather than transformation. True. 
and we got to the solution that these men gave us. It's a transformation that occurs through the crucifixion of our own lives. That like 1 Peter 2 and verse 23 says that we must entrust ourselves to Him who judges justly. Can anybody say along with me that every one of these are true about you? Can everybody in here understand that we actually have to entrust ourselves to Him and that the answer is the transformation that requires, that is necessitated through our own crucifixion? As we pray, let your heart rise to Him and state your petition, the condition of your heart, what is true, and simultaneously have that hope of ongoing transformation, ongoing resurrection power that will make you yet into a new creation again. Do you have the hope, Six? Yes. Let's lift up our hearts and our hands. Father, we thank you for your word. Your truth that cuts right down to our heart, dividing soul and spirit. Lord, right now we lift up our souls to you. Lord, we put before you our condition. The truth of what we have been. And we look to you and you alone as the salvation of our souls, the transformer of our being. Lord, our hope is that you will change us and change us here and right now. That these things in full view and light are laid down at your feet and your divine hand and word creates something brand new inside of us again. Lord, we thank you We thank you for this opportunity to see clearly what is true inside of us and the in light what is true about you. You are a God who restores. You are a God who redeems. You are a God who makes new all over again. Lord, we thank you for your word that is alive inside of us and is resurrecting us even now, mighty God. Lord, let your spirit hover over us. Lord, your word combine with it and bring life inside of us right now. Lord, we rejoice in the ability to approach your throne yet once again. And Father, may we live our lives by total trust-grounded obedience in you while being dead completely to us. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity to spend time in your word with your people and yet being made new again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.